Well, hello, chatters. Uh, I'm going to hang on, say hello. Well, hi. What? Why do we both use that? <laughs> I don't know. It's a bit crazy, isn't it? Um, I am sitting at Annabelle Crabbe's kitchen table, and in front of me has been plonked a beautiful bowl with cauliflower soup in it. Annabelle Crabbe is, I'll give you a commentary, she's wearing jeans, which I always find surprising. <laughs> now she's wiggling her bum, which is quite the sight. She's wearing grey Ugg boots and a yellow cardigan. She says they're like a grey-blue. They're the colour of a Russian blue cat, if anyone knows what that looks like. Um, she has the famous hair in a low ponytail and that's it. And now, oh, she's just put her – She's <laughs> and she's topless. <laughs> now, she's, now she's just put a delicious-looking piece of olive bread in front of me that I'm going to be able to dip in this soup. It looks so fantastic. Thank you so much. You are the best. Well, you're very welcome. Um You have, because I think of everything. Um, While you're just addressing yourself to that soup, I will tell you how I made it. Um, So I had a – there's just like bargain cauliflowers to be had around the place uh, at the moment. But they do occupy a lot of fridge space, your collie, so I thought I'd better move on it. Um, I was going to make you a recipe from our new cookbook that's coming out later this year, um, which is a cauliflower – roast cauliflower salad with sherried currants – Toasted nuts and thank you. Um, toasted nuts and uh, capers, and then of course I remembered you're the barking mad person who doesn't like capers. <laughs> so uh, I scotched that idea and I decided to make soup instead, which is very easy. So I just chopped up the cauliflower into florets, nice plump ones, and roasted them at about like 200 fan force, like super hot, with um, a couple of potatoes chopped up olive oil, um, some cumin seeds and um, what else? Oh, yeah, about half a head of garlic, like just sort of um, broken up into cloves but not skinned so they bake in their skins. bit of olive oil, bit of salt, salt um, into the oven, roast for about, I don't know, 25 minutes or something until they're sort of soft and getting a bit golden. Um, and then into a pot with a litre of stock um, and cook until it's all soft and then Then I realised it was a bit salty because I think I am a bit of a salt pest, so I put a bit of a lemon squeeze in there just to relieve you of that saltiness. Well, it's extremely delicious, I can report. Thank you very much. Um, Can I ask a question? Does cauliflower cause flatulence? Uh, Give it about an hour and I'll let you know. Um, (laughs) No, it seems like it could be a bit farty, but not not on the sort of Jerusalem artichoke scale. <laughs> Jerusalem artichoke's just like because you read, oh, you know that gives you gas. Jerusalem artichoke suddenly you're like the entire wind section of the orchestra, <laughs> like a like really not very long after. See, I never knew that. You, the, that's the reason I asked about the cauliflower because I remember once you know telling you I was cooking Jerusalem artichoke soup, and you were like, oh, brace yourself. <laughs> Look, that, I don't really mind a bit of a pop off. That doesn't bother me. But, like, <laughs> the thing about Jerusalem artichokes is, God, I once went to Mona, Kwang, um, and a friend of mine had a birthday dinner there, which was, like, so good because, I mean, you get sort of wander through the gallery and then have this incredible dinner. And they had, they served whole roasted Jerusalem artichokes that were unbelievably delicious, roasted like potatoes. And they were so plump and they they looked like big roots of ginger, you know, like when they're in their 
large and delicious form and they are just so silky and buttery and um but sometimes they're quite nuggety and kind of like bumpy and they you get um dirt stuck in them and they're a hell of a job to clean but these were just sort of huge bursting ones that were wow i really remember that meal Yum, that sounds beautiful. The soup that I make, you have toasted crushed hazelnuts on top of it, which goes really, really beautiful with the flavour of the Jerusalem artichoke. Now, um, can I apologise in advance for the possible audio quality of this, which, look, who would know because we don't plug the headphones in to monitor it. Um, I just hear people slapping their foreheads all over the country. Um, It's just that – so we recorded a live show in Orange – Obviously, at the theatre, they've done something where they've mixed tracks one and two, and now I can't work out how to unmix it. So we have to just be sharing one microphone, passing it back and forth. We're sitting about 30 centimetres away from each other. And I just know that. Quite I, I just know Brenda is going to be wanting to smash us both in the face. Um, so apologies in advance if it's in any way annoying. Yeah, I apologise for um, anything else that Lee does that's <laughs> annoying as well. Now, do you want to eat some soup and do you want me to start? Sure. Hmm. I would like to talk about um, Trent Dalton's new novel. Now, you'll know Trent Dalton, well, maybe you will, I don't know. If you read The Australian Magazine, you'll be very familiar with him. And in fact, he may be the reason you read The Australian Magazine. Um, I am massively drawn to anything that this guy writes because he's one of these irritating people that is born somehow with this incredible ability. Like, he knows, he draws people, his specialty is just even sometimes visiting people that you really haven't heard of or don't know and can just paint you a picture of them or find something human and indefinable about them and make you just feel like they're the most interesting person in the world. He's got this incredible talent, you know. Um, so um, I, he, he wrote this great piece once – I wish I could um, – I wish I'd sort of pulled it up about a, a, a widower who – yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Um, anyway, we'll find that link and we'll um, uh, we'll link to it. Um, but anyway, so it, when someone you know who's great at writing nonfiction, as Trent Dalton just beyond compare is, um, you're always nervous when they write a novel, I reckon, because you think, ah, oh, is this going to work out? Like – Maybe your switch is just nonfiction and, I mean, obviously I'll read it because I'll re- read anything that Trent Dalton writes, but, like, this is high stakes, right? Anyway, so I picked up this book. In fact, um, I was sent it in advance to sort of, you know, give a an opinion on it. Um, not that I have really know Trent um, except through um, just reading him, but his publisher sent, you know, uh, a manuscript and, you know, if you like it, you could endorse it sort of thing. And... Within, I don't know, not all that many pages, I just thought this is a great, great, great book. So the book is about um, a boy who's growing up in the suburbs of uh, Brisbane. His mum is a junkie and um, uh, is selling drugs. His stepfather is too. His dad's in prison and he's got this um, brother who doesn't speak. And so, like, there's this instant – almost magic realism element to it. Now, I'm not into magic realism in a big way, so that doesn't necessarily attract me, but there is something so appealing about the character and about the writing and about the generosity of this story, which is set in the roughest guts kind of uh, Brisbane suburbs. Can I ask at this point, are you aware that this is loosely based on Trent Dalton's actual life? Yeah, I am. 
And I did not – I don't know anything about Trent Dalton's life, right? Uh, and it turns out that this is really um, quite significantly based on his own life story because when he was a kid, those were his circumstances, right? And so that makes it quite an amazing thing to read. But the great virtue of the book and, – and this kid – goes through this sort of madcap adventure. Um, he, he falls in love with a journalist just through her byline and and, and is determined to meet her one day. Um, and he uh, her, his, his mum goes to prison and he makes this attempt to break in and get her out. And his father figure is this mysterious ex-crim who went to prison for many, many years to uh, for murdering a, a cab driver and is one of the um, most famous escapees from Bogo Road Jail. Um, so there's a whole lot of jailbreak about it. Um, but the main thing is that this kid, even though he's has these dreadful things happening to him and it's 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 a really confronting book, you know, there's a, there's a lot of violence, um, but he keeps this – incredibly sunny um, attitude of optimism and particularly love for his mother, who's a really flawed character, that really just sort of sings throughout the book. And it kind of explains a lot about Trent's writing, I reckon. Like if that's if that's his life curve, it, un, it, it really reveals how he's developed this incredible talent for finding a beautiful thing in a rubbish tip, you know. Well, I um, I wonder if, and because I feel like this when I read his writing, that he's very forgiving as a writer of the subject. Yeah. And so I wonder if that's part of, you know, the sort of relationship with his mother. I'm about a quarter of the way into this book and it's, you know, he is a really wonderful writer. And as you say, um, it's really interesting when someone who's a great nonfiction writer turns their hand to fiction and, like, he can definitely do it. Um I can't remember if I've ever asked you this on the podcast before. Would you ever have a stab at doing fiction? Oh, I'd love to. You know, I, I, I would love to. And over the years I've thought, oh, that's a great idea for a novel. But I, I don't know. I always feel really self-conscious when I'm making something up, to be honest. And, like, I feel like when I'm writing about something that's there that I can see, I take great pleasure in kind of trying to find a way of describing it or um, finding an allegory or finding a way to pick up some element of it that I find really fascinating. And I love doing that. Like I used to love writing that way about politics. Um, I mean, still do. Um, but I think I'd feel incredibly um, almost agoraphobic mm. writing a novel because at least when you're writing about something that's happened or a person that you can see or a set of events – then it's like being on a like a railway track and you're kind of composing scenery or you're you're you know I think if you're making something up you suddenly you're in outer space you know that's how I feel I'm not I'm it's hot Callum. hot Callum hello hot Callum um okay just hang on half a sec okay I'm just going to pause the podcast because <gasps> Callum's actually got something important to talk about okay let me just bring you up to date with what's just happened so um <laughs> Sales has like completed her conversation with Hot Callum in like quite a short period of time. And then uh, we've resumed our podcast. So we've had a little bit of a discussion about a bunch of different things. And then, <laughs> for what, like 10, 15 minutes, maybe? Ten. Something like that, maybe 10 minutes. Uh, and then all of a sudden, 
Sales just looks at the medieval contraceptive device and says, oh, bugger, I forgot to unpause it. So we've just been, all we've been doing is conversing without anyone listening. It's <laughs> retrospectively a very hollow experience. <laughs> so I guess should we pick up from, I don't know if we recorded talking about writing fiction or not. Well, Let's just do it again. No, we recorded a bit of it. Like, so I said what I thought. You hadn't said what you thought just yet. In fact, you st- I can remember what you started off saying. You just said it's like in um, in nonfiction, at least the world gives you a structure, right? Like you have to come up with a writing structure around it, but um, the actual raw materials are already there. Take it away. That's true. And I remember um, structure is a very hard thing in writing. And I remember when I was writing Detainee 002, there was a particular chapter that I wanted to start with the head of ASIO at the time, Dennis Richardson, getting the call to say, hey, we've picked up an Australian in Afghanistan. And because coming up with a structure is hard to do, I was utterly wedded to this idea. It was like I had gripped, you know, a piece of, you know, driftwood in the ocean and I had something to hold on to. And then I went to see Dennis Richardson and he couldn't remember where he was. And I was like, well, you must. How can you not? I was just badgering him. He's like, well, I don't... don't, how many phone calls do you think I got? I, I could have been in my car. I could have been. And so I was just like, oh, God, what am I going to do? Anyway, so I had to come up with an alternative um, structure. So that is, that is so interesting because when you're writing a book, I find that, you know, you, you've normally got a bunch of good ideas, right? So you've got 10 great sort of like ideas for, you know, something to go in a chapter or some little kind of, pen portrait or some anecdote or whatever and then you usually have 10 to 15 sort of so-so ideas then you have a couple of genuine shockers (laughs) and sometimes you've uh, you've decided that something is going to be a great way to start the book or it's going to be like you you know hang hung your hat on this sort of riveting account of a man receiving a telephone call I mean really (laughs) but anyway (laughs) Dennis Richardson squinted against the Canberra setting sun as he drove determinedly through the evening peak hour traffic. A rugged man with a ready smile. And two very scary dogs. So, um, but what I think is really interesting about structuring a book is it's not, it's so much not all about what ends up on the page and in the book, so much of it is about the stuff that you cut away in the end. And sometimes it doesn't go until the last minute. And sometimes I always think it's like, you know, you see houses going up and you've got those sort of pine frames that look incredibly flimsy. And in the end, they have nothing to do with the house. They're just a sort of a a guide for when you start off. And one of the great disciplines, I think, of writing a book is doing that hard and emotional mental work of kicking all that stuff away and chopping chunks of it out. Well, in my um, forthcoming book, Any Any Ordinary Day, available for pre-order from Booktopia, um, there I started Chapter 1 in a particular way that it actually involved interviewing somebody. Yeah. And in the final draft of the book, not one word of it survived. And it was cut quite late in the process, but I just – there was something about it that I kept coming back to and thinking, look, it's, it's fine as a piece of writing. There's nothing wrong with it, but it seems to me – that it is not quite the central point of the book. It seems like a bit of a red herring. And then it was a case of it couldn't be shoehorned in anywhere else. It just didn't fit. So I ended up cutting it. But if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have been able to get to where I eventually got. 
And like not to want to seem like an insufferable smartass or anything, but I do remember you sending me that opening at the time and you were like, oh, does this work? What do you think? Should I keep it? And I said, well, look, this is chapter, this is chapter one. This is the chapter that will change a hell of a lot. By the time you've read the, written the other stuff, you'll get a sense of perspective on it. So, and I said, I think, I'm not sure that this will like be the way you do it, but leave it there for now because you'll know more later on. God, I'm wise. To your credit, you did say that. Um, yes, so that was very smart and also very emotionally intelligent that you didn't go, no, that doesn't work, just lose it. You just went, just leave it. It'll come to you. It'll be fine. But it did take um, – there were a couple of bits of this new book that took an inordinate amount of time and getting the opening, you know, four paragraphs right was just <laughs> really hard. But it's it's a great feeling when you do – I always find the feeling of having written – a way better feeling than the feeling of am writing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's satisfying when you get to the other end. Speaking of this, um, I listened to a really interesting podcast. Just tell you this anecdote for the second time now since I wasn't rolling last time. Um, and it really interesting podcast about writing and the process of writing called The Garrett. Um, the episode I listened to featured my friend Tony Martin, of who I'm also a big fan, who's written all sorts of things from radio sketch comedy, TV sketch comedy, um, film, uh, books, everything. And so he talked about his process. Um, it was I love people talking about their writing process, so I found it super fascinating. One of the things he said is that he spends a lot of time walking around the house muttering to himself and just improvising aloud because he says you get a hell of a lot of crap that way but you also get lots of nuggets of, you know, humour or insight or whatever, much like this podcast I'd suggest. So when he does that, is he recording himself? I would guess so um, because if you're doing that for an hour, you know, you're not going to – it's going to break your flow, isn't it, if you stop, sit down and write it down. How could you bear to go back and listen to all that crap though? I don't even listen to this podcast. I really don't because I'm like you with a book. I'm like, it's done. (laughs) Yeah. I'd hate to – imagine transcribing your own wandering around the house bullshit. That would just be intensely annoying. I find it impossible or, or excruciating to hear back my own interviews. Oh, that was one of the things with um, Caliphate. Hang on, have I talked about Caliphate? <laughs> no, you haven't, you great dill. Oh, my God. You're a wreck. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, did I mention I've been listening to another podcast called Caliphate, um, which is it's put together by a New York Times journalist called Rukmini Kalamachi or Kalamaki maybe, um, who covers the Al Qaeda and Islamic State beat for the New York Times. She's our age. She's absolutely amazing. Here comes someone else at your front door. It's Grand Central Station here. Um, just a postie or something, I think. It might be my um, 11 a.m. lover. <laughs> Sorry, she's already busy. Um, so she covers that beat, the terror, extremist, um, you know, Islamist terrorist beat. She goes to, you know, the front line of wars in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan and stuff and gathers actual physical material and then she also does research via the internet. So this podcast, she's tracked down this guy in Canada who went off to fight with Islamic State and returned to Canada. Um, it's not clear yet if he'd been arrested or if he's on prison time or whatever, young guy, and she meets him in a hotel room and starts talking him through his experience for how he was recruited and so forth. It's really, really super fascinating and I feel like it's giving me a huge amount of insight into just the way Islamic State recruits and works and reminding me um, that it is just basically a cult. It's a cult that indoctrinates people um, and the same people that are susceptible to any kind of cult 
allow you chat 10 people <laughs> are susceptible <laughs> to joining Islamic State. Um, so it's either, you know, you're driven to either buy a tea towel that is uh, composed entirely of insults between people uh, that no one else cares about or uh, wiping out a marketplace of people. Beheading infidels. It's one or the other. Um, so, yeah, it's good that you guys are on the tea towel bandwagon. Um, the- I've, I've got a podcast um you know, I just wanted to update you. I know I've told you about this about a million times. I am still just so engaged in two, those two Australian podcasts, um, Unravel the ABC one and Teacher's Pet, the one by Hedley Thomas and the Australian. Uh, I, I am now running my life around both of these podcasts. I feel a surge of joy when I open up my podcast app and there's a freshie in there. Like there should be a, a word for the joy that you feel when the podcast that you're addicted to like drops another episode. And I, I obviously have to apologise to anyone who's listening who's just very rarely uh, thrilled in that way by us. I was just going to say exactly that, a, a feeling that we frequently deprive our listeners of experiencing. Um, the reason, sorry, that I segued into Caliphate was that I – one of the things – I really like it, but one of the things that's annoying me just because we were talking before about listening back to your own interviews is um, – because I spend a lot of time thinking about interviewing and the art of interviewing and what will elicit its answers and stuff like that, not leading people with the kind of questions that you ask. Um, I'm a bit irritated by the leading questions. Like he talks about this guy, how he was going off to Turkey to basically get involved with Islamic State, but his parents thought he was going off to study. And um, the journalist says, but, you know, didn't, didn't you feel bad about lying to your parents? Like, no, you should say, how do you, how did you feel about lying to your parents? And so there's a lot of examples of that where I feel like, well, you're sort of being led a bit there and the questions aren't open. Cause if you say to someone, didn't you feel bad? That, that's a yes or no answer. Mm-hmm. If you say, how did you feel about lying to your parents? How did you justify lying to your parents? It elicits a longer response. So I'm a little bit irked by the interviewing, but you know, God, I'd be irked listening to my own interviewing. Why is that not recording again? Oh no, it is recording. It's okay. Oh my God, you're the worst person in the world. <laughs> no, you're not. Um, so I have oh, – there's another book that I've read recently that I wanted to mention um, and it's by – I actually have a former colleague of mine. Um, I used to work with her at the Sydney Morning Herald a long, long, long time ago. Um, she's a great journo. She stopped being a journo, I think, um, these days. She's a lawyer. She, she's, she left journalism and went to become a lawyer, which, you know – is the reverse direction for a lot of people. Um, and she's now a financial crime analyst. God. Wow. Um, but anyway, she's written this book called Headstrong Daughters, uh, inspiring stories from the new generation of Australian Muslim women. And it is just the most fascinating book. She's interviewed a whole bunch of very diverse Muslim women about their domestic experiences or professional experiences with where their faith puts them in a situation, you know, that is um, – that that causes comment from um, uh, non-Muslim Australians or whatever. Um, and it's, it's, it's such a beautiful book because it's very neutral. She is not really present in the book. She just tells these women's stories through interviews and it's a very factual kind of delivery – but what it does is identify these women's lives and make them really kind of glow and you get drawn into the detail of their lives and you feel like you are um, on their side looking out, you know, in their life looking out. And it's, I mean, 
all of their experiences are quite diverse. And so one of the most valuable things, I think, for me as a non-Muslim reader reading it is to have it reinforced that, you know, there is no such thing as the 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 Muslim woman's experience in Australia it depends, you know, um, which bit of the club you hang out in, which, you know, um, uh, what your own personal beliefs are, also what your family's beliefs are and, um, and so on. It's just, it's such a valuable book. I've ended it feeling that I understood a lot more than I did when I started it out. So anyway, it's a great book. Um, I feel like <laughs> just to – not that I'm not interested in that because that was really interesting, um, but I just feel slightly panic-stricken about the time <laughs> now that Hot Callum's also rung. <laughs> like why are you wasting time off doing your hobby with your buddy? Uh, you need to be in the office. So I reckon I should probably wrap it up and then just plonk this mess of recording into the lap of Brenda. Sounds fine to me. If you uh, like us, you can look at the website, chat10looks3.com. What else can they do? Uh, they could just make that cauliflower soup because it's nice. You could be just – Grateful that you looked at your podcast and there was one from us today. Congratulations. You could also um, go to the, go to our Facebook group. You could. You could. Um, don't get your hopes up about another podcast in any sort of timely fashion. Um, just we want to issue that cautionary note. Um, you could try uh, butter, which I've done today instead of margarine. Oh, also, I had to cut your bread without an electric knife. I, how do you even exist in the world? Like, how can you – margarine, man, I just – of all the things that have nearly ended our friend. Listen, it's olive oil spread. It's not, mate. It's all margarine. Like they call it olive oil spread so it doesn't sound like hydrolyzed crap from the 1980s. <laughs> Newsflash, it's still hydrolyzed crap from the 1980s, you great buffoon. How can you not have an electric knife? God, now you're just like mixing it up. I don't have an electric knife because I'm not 76. That's why. <laughs> My electric knife is so useful. Dinner parties at your place, man. Like, like that bread that I just cut, it was like, like a saw. If the electric knife is here, like butter. That's why I have this incredible muscle tone in my arms, man. Okay, I really am getting to work now. This is taking a very silly turn. <laughs> <laughs>